VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Wednesday, November the 16th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer. You'll be speaking with David when you pick up the phone and give us a call. So if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, one 590 VOCM, which is 8626. Well, needless to say, a bit of a wintry morning here in this neck of the woods. Some ice on the windshield. Make sure you got the scraper handy because I got a feeling more of this in the offing. Of course, there is. So, last night, I sat down to watch a bit of my Montreal Canadiens play against the New Jersey Devils. And of course, the Devils trounced them 5 to 1. They're on a real 10 game heater. But Dawson Mercer, I tell you what, he looked really good. He had a pair of assists last night. So Mercer, not off to the flying start I'm sure he was hoping for, but a couple of points last night looking good. And Montreal were in these unfortunately ugly sweaters. So yesterday, also in my neighborhood, there was a scheduled power outage. And so when I got home for lunch, it took me a couple of minutes to even realize that the power was out. And so with no TV or computers or whatever to deal with. So myself and the lads sat down for a quick game of cards. And just because of a call that we had yesterday, and you never know what calls are going to get a lot of feedback, whether it be on Twitter or email, but Ellen from Cornerbrook, 89-year-old lady, banned from the Seniors Club, which is a real shame because you know how many seniors, that's part of their, that's part of the routine, to get out for whether it be cards or knitting or quilting or darts or whatever the case may be. And so we sat down for a game. I knew full well I was going 20 with whatever I had dealt to me, no matter what. And of course, got the bid. I had no five, but got the 20. Anyway, you want to talk? about growl let's go speaking of power outages newfoundland labrador hydro warning that today and maybe tomorrow between 8 a.m and 8 p.m there may indeed be some unscheduled outages once again as they test the labrador island link so if there's any surge of power we may indeed see blocks of customers like we did yesterday or the day before whichever it was some 57,000 customers without power albeit for the average of 16 minutes hydro says that if it happens they should be able to reinstate or restore power in and around 30 minutes but there you go there may indeed be some trips as they test the labrador island link and then across the maritime link to nova scotia and beyond and because of it popular tool for many people to have in their homes these days is a battery operated radio it was today in 19 where's the number here uh today 1904 an inventor named john ambrose fleming he patented the vacuum tube which of course was essential for radios and was the beginning of a lot of modern day electronics so there you go a couple of quick sports ones today 1957 the great bill russell he pulled down 49 rebounds to set a record. It was then broken by Wilt Chamberlain, who set the new modern-day record at 55. And in 2003, 16-year-old Lionel Messi made his debut for Barcelona. 16 years of age, one of the best of a generation. And quickly on the soccer note... So, with Canada poised to kick off their World Cup in Qatar, November 23rd against Belgium, our very best player, Alfonso Davies, still not in Qatar, training with the team. They've got one tune-up match left against Japan before they kick off the tournament proper. But Davies, I tell you what, you know, you see the boys talking about the team. They've got this next-man-up mentality. But we've got nobody to fill in what would be left behind with Alfonso Davies. He hurt his hamstring playing for his uh, club, Bayern Munich, in the Bundesliga. So he's still not in Qatar. Lots of worries that he might not be available to start the tournament. He's widely regarded as one of the best backs in the world. 
the speed with, with which this boy plays is absolutely astounding, but Davies not there yet. Uh, the quick one here out of the education note. So there's this young lady named Maeve Collins Tobin, originally from this province. She attends Carleton University. She's been named one of 11 Rhodes Scholars in the country. So the scholarship valued at more than $100,000, and of course going on to cover the cost of postgraduate studies at the University of Oxford in the UK. So congratulations to Maeve Collins Tobin, Rhodes Scholar, originally from here. Okay, a couple of quick ones. So many people were maybe even surprised when Federal Minister Stephen Guibo released the Beta Nord project, of course, Equinor and its partner, BP Canada, with what could be a massive find. So the company says that they have confirmed some 500 million barrels. Some of the industry insiders say it might be more like a billion barrels. But they did some additional drilling to try to pad the business case to proceed. Now remember, their top dog said they're going full steam ahead. Okay, so they drilled a couple of wells at Sitka and Cambrio, and, well, they were dusters. Now, apparently there's some operational challenges that led them to abandon the drilling at Sitka before they could access the area where they thought there was some oil, but those two additional drills had come up empty. Anyway, we'll see what happens with Beta Nord. Do you want to talk about that industry in any front? We can do it. Yesterday, the Premier, Minister Parsons, and others made an announcement regarding some details for housing compensation for those who had serious damage in homes that were lost during the aftermath of Fiona. You know, still hard to imagine we saw what we saw when that storm ravaged parts of the southwest coast. Some 85 to 90 homes were either washed away in full or they're uninhabitable at this point because of the damage suffered with the storm surge. So the details are like this. The replacement value set at a minimum of $200 per square foot. So if you have a 2,000 square foot home, that works out to be $400,000. Still some evaluations by insurance assessments and adjusters about where people might rebuild and maybe some specifics regarding different pieces of property and the damage suffered. It is good that the province came forward, of course, with so many people left and alert their insurance policies did not cover the storm surge damage so $200 minimum per square foot there is more available coverage through the disaster financial assistance arrangement federally for property contents and then there's other you know you have to register with the Canadian Red Cross and individual homeowners, tenants, business owners, not-for-profits, municipalities, LSDs, they can avail of further federal relief. We have some toll-free numbers here if you didn't get the details yesterday. So, again, I'm still mind-boggled. And that Saturday afternoon, I had to get away from my phone. You know, there was that one image in the video of this blue home being washed away out into the ocean, gone, destroyed. So, anyway, if you want to talk about what we're hearing and seeing and feeling on the southwest coast... We're happy to take that on as well. Now, there's been a couple of fires here in the city here in the last few days, and it's always awful. And when people get dis- displaced by flood or fire, of course, it just puts a big upheaval into their entire life. The most recent fire sees seven international students displaced. Now, it's bad for anyone who gets displaced. The reason I bring it up on this front is that it's really time that we see the Home Share Program at Memorial University and or CNA and or the Marine Institute or all of these post-secondary institutions see the Home Share Program reinstated. It just makes all the sense in the world. 
the housing crunch and the cost for newcomers, locals, and international students, we've heard the stories. So when seniors who might like the company and maybe some help around the home, able to offer a cut rate in rent, and an international student finds a place to live. Consequently, some of the others who are facing the housing crunch, whether it be locals or looking for a new rental property, and or newcomers, whether it be from Ukraine or Indian nurses or whatever the case may be, freeing up more and more space to try to deal with an extremely low vacancy rate. I know it won't do anything to impact what is the soaring rent cost, but, you know, these ideas just work. I don't know what the hurdle will be in to try and reinstate it. There's models out there that we can mimic. There was already a home share program at Memorial University. So let's see if we can get that going, like, right away. Anyway, on to health care. So Minister Osborne has directed the regional health authorities to hire more nurse practitioners. Now, that sounds about right, but hire, recruit them and hire them from where? I mean, if there's a scramble nationwide for all of these healthcare professionals, it's fine to be directed to fill some of the gaps and the vacancies, but, you know, without any real understanding about where these nurse practitioners are, I mean, we even have a lack of streamlining for uh, accreditation process that we're already dealing with. So, yes, I'm sure we're short tons of nurse practitioners. You know, if you hear from the registered nurses union, they itemize it. And so... The plan is not only to utilize them in the system as it stands today, but to expand the collaborative care clinics to some 35 province-wide. The collaborative care clinic in concept sounds like an excellent idea. Not every time we need to go see a healthcare professional does that require a family doctor. And yes, LPNs, nurse practitioners, and others can absolutely perform a role that you need on one day or another when you present or you have an appointment or a walk-in clinic at a collaborative care center. So again, it all sounds like a good idea, but how and where and why, which is why I think a conversation with Dr. Megan Hayes, the most difficult job in this province, the deputy minister responsible for recruiting and retaining healthcare professionals, just extraordinary, but yeah, I'm sure we need lots of nurse practitioners like we do everybody else in the system, including the stories regarding radiation therapists, radiation oncologists. One of the four suites for radiation at the Bliss Murphy Center has been closed because of staffing shortages. When you hear the stories and the headlines like that, it all sounds bad enough, but then you hear the personal stories. You know, the real-life impact that these issues have, and in this particular case, a lady named Mary Kelly from Central. So she had surgery in August. She was told by her radiation oncologist at the time the most beneficial time for her follow-up radiation, of which there was 20 ordered, would be during a 16-week window following the surgery. First appointment was scheduled for the 17th of this month. Then it was bumped to November 29th, which took her outside that 16-week window. Now, we've been told that radiation patients can indeed see compensation given to them and someone to accompany them to Toronto, to the Princess Margaret Cancer Care Center. Miss Kelly, through a variety of reasons, was presented with three options. Get a mastectomy, as opposed to the breast-saving surgery she had in August, or take a chance and go to Toronto, when in fact, you're not even guaranteed the treatments in Toronto inside that 16-week window. So she says there's a variety of reasons why Toronto is not an option for her, but then to hear some of the direct quotes. However, if I'm delayed much further here, I will probably consider and say I'll take my chances with going to Toronto and having my treatment because I can't rely on the system here because of staff shortages. Then it's the big what-ifs. You're always left with the question that if down the road my cancer does return, could it have been because I was delayed in my follow-up treatment? That is something I will have to live with on a go-forward basis, all of these what-ifs. The personal stories really drive home the point. 
but how serious this is. If the professional, the radiation therapist or the radiation oncologist tells you the real window of opportunity is in this case 16 weeks and we're unable to follow through with it and even if you go to toronto you're not even guaranteed to get the kind of treatment you need in a timely fashion in toronto away from your home away from your family away from your friends away from the comfortable familiar setting that would be in your own home in your own community so sure it's great to develop a partnership with a hospital in toronto but it doesn't even guarantee you the service. So, Mary, I wish you and everyone else impacted by these shortages and the closure of one of the four suites at the Bliss Murphy Center, we wish you nothing but the very best. But that story, when I read it this morning, really, really drove it home for me. Anyway, a couple of notes coming from the media availability with Dr. Janice Fitzgerald yesterday. A couple of interesting things. So now there's going to be rapid test kits mailed out via Canada Post for free, starting late this month and into early December. Okay, the kits are going to help people assess your symptoms. Of course they are. You get two test kits, each containing five tests, distributed through Canada Post, two separate deliveries of one kit each. Okay. Back at the beginning, of course, they were provided at schools and uh, healthcare settings and congregate living facilities, and the clamor was for them to be made available for free like it was across the province, or pardon me, across the country. Now you're going to be able to pick it up your MHA's office or all the public libraries here in the province. Okay. That, and that's if you don't get it via the post. So I guess people will be encouraged by this, but, you know... If you're unwell, stay home, regardless if you have COVID or not. You know, that's just, I think, the common sense approach that we've been taking pre-pandemic. It's always been the way to try to, you know, stay away from your uh, place of work and or your buddies and stuff if you're just not feeling well, whether it be the common cold or otherwise. So I guess it's important if you do indeed test positive for COVID and you have symptoms, there's a difference with being uh, taken on a risk of going to see mom when you have the sniffles and have a cold versus if you have COVID for the obvious reasons. So I guess this will be helpful in some corners. And Dr. Fitzgerald, and I think this is the announcement people were waiting on more than the conversation regarding rapid test kits, is there will be no mask mandate. She says there is not a public health emergency at this time, and so it does not constitute any requirement of masking in public indoor spaces. Now, at healthcare settings, we're doing it, and you have to do it there. Okay. So whether it be in school or at the grocery store or at the liquor store or wherever you're going, there is no mask mandate. There is a sigh of relief in many corners, but also some concern. So what, how it impacts you, what you make of that decision, I'll leave it up to you to offer your opinion here this morning. But, you know, we do see some, some uh, cases of the flu, some other respiratory illnesses, RSV. There is some COVID out there, how much we don't know. But no mask mandate will be brought back at this moment in time. A couple of quickies before we get to you. Are you following along with the public inquiry into the invocation of the Emergency Measures Act? I'm watching a bit of it. And, you know, there's a variety of takeaways. Police incompetence and the lack of coordination. And yes, of course, what went into the final decision for the Prime Minister to announce the Emergency Measures Act and what that meant realistically on the ground. You know, one of the thresholds was always the thought of a threat to national security. 
The director of CSIS says there was no such threat. And then even the RCMP and CSIS, they go on to say that they weren't even really asked if there was thoughts of a national a threat to national security. The government says they deserve more latitude or something about determining whether or not there is such threat. But if you have an intelligence agency, which was indeed investigating people on the ground, but says there was no threat, what does that mean for the outcome of this inquiry? Even if that is the final determination, what does that actually mean? You know, what kind of accountability will ever be put in place? But CISA says no threat. And it's just interesting. And two of the convoy leaders, they say they don't have the money to defend themselves against the class action lawsuit brought forward for the city residents and added to then by lawyer Paul Champ for uh, lost business revenue and what have you. They're looking for the government to give them some couple of hundred thousand dollars to retain lawyers out of the millions that were sent to them via GoFundMe and then finally Give, Send, Go, I think was the other app. But if you're following along what, like with that and you want to talk about it, we can do it. And lastly, again, I don't know how closely anyone's following things like the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It got a bit dodgy and a bit scary there yesterday when people were so quick to rattle the sabers into a third world war when there was a missile that landed in Poland. And yes, it killed two people. So, of course, Poland is one of the 30 members of NATO. And so the big test will always be Article 5, an attack on one is an attack on all. And then, of course, would be the consequential fight back, escalating the war. So, so quickly, you know, I don't think Vladimir Putin deserves the benefit of the doubt. But now the Polish president says this morning that he thinks Ukraine fired it. So when we're talking about something as consequential and as severe as NATO forces joining ranks to fight back militarily, my God, getting some details in order versus the invocation of Article 5, not even knowing what the hell went on. Apparently, this is anti, uh, anti-air anti missile fire that maybe came from Ukraine. It's a Russian-made missile, but Russian-made, we know that the Ukrainians actually have some of those Russian-made missiles. So... While it got pretty testy there for a few minutes yesterday, well, I guess it's still probably pretty testy. Emergency meetings called for the G7 members that they're all at the G20 summit in Bali, but we're not even really sure exactly what happened, so it might be a good idea to get those details before you go any further. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. When we come back, we're speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. And welcome back to the program. Let's begin this morning on line number two. Say good morning to the CEO of Carino Processing. That's Dion Dakins. Good morning, Dion. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad, thanks. How about you? Good, Patty. Um, calling in about you know issues separate, certainly of everything in your preamble, but uh, you know my thoughts immediately go to the to the people in the Ukraine and Poland, and hopefully that can all stabilize and lead to a lead to a more secure economy for us globally. But bringing it back locally, I guess I wanted to call in uh, related to the Seal Summit that was hosted in last week and what we see as as a primary producer. Um, you know the opportunities that are around that. We're very thankful that the hum- that the summit was hosted, uh, but also about the outcomes and the uh, the exchanges that happened inside the summit over the uh, over the two days. I know you're disappointed in what you refer to as the negativity, whether it be before it, during it, or after it. What in particular disappoints you? What's been said that you think is missing the point? 
Yeah, well, I think we're not focusing on what the future needs to be. Um, you know, it certainly it wasn't easy uh, for the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, you know, receiving the Atlantic Seal Science Task Team report back in May. Uh, that report was commissioned by Minister Wilkinson, um, the Liberal government back in 2019. Uh, the team struggled through COVID and produced what is a, a very meaningful report. There's nine recommendations, one of which was uh, for a SEAL uh, forum to be to be hosted. Now, we did just have a SEAL summit, uh, which was organized by the minister, and, and it's recognized that we require a third-party platform. And we're hoping that the department is going to embrace that recommendation and institute a SEAL forum to be hosted uh, 2023 through 2028, uh, which would provide a meaningful action-oriented platform uh, to implement all the cha- all the recommendations in the ASSTT report. Uh, but particularly what, what has happened now over the last few days is there's a lot of negative news around the SEAL industry, uh, stories that aren't related to the, to the SEAL summit at all, that really have no impact um, you know, or relevance, I don't think, in terms of what we're going to do going forward uh, to embrace the, uh, you know, Canada's need to move towards a, a new blue economy approach. And, and we're seeing throughout all fisheries uh, that our science approach, uh, data collection analysis and implementation hasn't been adequate to bring our fisheries uh, ultimate value. I, I, I think there's a lot more for our fisheries. I think there's more that it can pr- it can generate in terms of uh, economic opportunity, and and you know that translates back to maintaining rural economies, and it may- translates back to keeping uh, communities viable and and broadening our our use in the ecosystem. So, just uh, just a little bit disappointed to see that through the media, uh, what's risen to the top is uh, you know negative news uh, versus. Uh, the great opportunity that was presented uh, by the department uh, organizing the summit and facilitating meaningful discussion and then embracing the concern of industry, not not just the sealing sector, but uh, the fishing sector broadly, that we need better science. And DFO is going to do that. They're going to commission third-party science on the impacts of seals in the uh, in the environment, and they're going to do that under the ecosystems and ocean science contribution framework. So I just want to go on record that Carino Processing Limited, our suppliers and our customers are very thankful for uh, the work that Minister Murray and the, you know, Minister Hutchings, who contributed a lot in this process, and also our our provincial uh, government, who has been really responsive in terms of helping us uh, work with the federal government to form a meaningful agenda, a good list of attendees, and uh, we just look forward to working with all levels of government and all parties uh, because partisanship will kill this opportunity for us, and, and not just in sealing, but uh, in our fishery broadly. We, we need to come together, work collectively, and uh, ensure that the, the seal harvest continues because it provides an essential ecosystem service in terms of keeping an apex predator um, at a level reasonable uh, towards maintaining viable fisheries, all species. So, okay, let's consider the commitment to third-party science as progress, and it is. And I would imagine the vast majority of people uh, listening to this program, whether they're involved with the fishery or the seal industry, are hoping for the long-term success for your company, for instance, and for some uh, balance to be struck in the ecosystem. So let's just go down the road and say that the third-party science says what most people already believe, is that there's too many seals and it has a negative impact on stock recovery. Okay. 
But the question then for me always has been, then what? Because if we don't even take the entirety of the quota now, is the key, and maybe I'm missing the point here, Dion, is the key to find an expanded market? Because unless there's going to be the political will to call for the sake of calling to strike a better balance in the ecosystem, it will always boil back down to where do we sell the product? So is that not the next most important step outside of the third-party science? They work together, uh, Patty. The way we see it, you know, we can't sit on our laurels now and wait for science to come back and tell us what we we strongly believe because of the observations of people out in the local environment. Where we cannot sit and wait for data collection and sit and wait for the results of that. If you look into the Gulf of St. Lawrence, for example, there's gray seals. And they are proven by DFO science that they are going to extirpate four species in the southern Gulf. They... The, Gray seal predation will extirpate four species, cod being one of them in the southern Gulf of St. Lawrence. We know that's the case. So industry's responsibility now is to put forward plans to see some harvesting happen in that sector, and that will happen collectively across Newfoundland and Labrador, Nova Scotia, PEI. The interests are are really there. They're genuine and sincere. So we are going to do our part and put together the plan to harvest do the innovation, do the processing required, and put those products to market. But market access has been a huge challenge for the sealing sector, and it's the primary challenge for the sealing sector, so I really appreciate your question. And we believe, as maybe you heard Kerry Bonnell yesterday evening on on CBC on the broadcast, talking about the importance of seal science, maintaining markets, recovering markets, um, we have to have the basic science just to be, DFO has to have it themselves, to be a good manager, to be to set reliable quotas, to build sustainability. So I'm not looking towards the science as a silver bullet. What I, what I see here is that the Department of Fisheries and Oceans has embraced the need to work collaboratively and collectively. This will be the first third-party science collected uh, by DFO related to SEALs. So what I, what I see here is an opportunity for us to work together, and that's why it's desperately important now that we establish a five-year working platform that's action-oriented, that is multi-pronged. It's not simply just waiting on the science. We have to move immediately to start to discuss with the Canadian market. Canadians need to understand the purpose of the of the seal hunt, the reason why we do this. It's not simply for commercial gain. It provides an ecosystem service. It balances an apex predator. We need to communicate better and differently. And that was one of the findings of the Atlantic Seal Science Task Team report, that DFO's communications needs to shift. They need to be better at communicating to the fishing industry and also to the general public about the value and purpose of seal harvesting, to translate science into digestible language that, that the, the average layman can understand. And uh, we're, I'm very encouraged that, that this happened. Um, it's something that we've been waiting for for 20 years, uh, collectively across the fishing sector. Uh, sealing is just a, a part of the fishing sector. We're, we're not different. We're not a different industry. We're regulated by the same groups. Our pro- people who deliver us the raw materials are, are the same as those in the other sectors. And uh, we just hope to really earn a, a greater understanding that 
perhaps the seal hunt not only provides economic opportunity, but that it's an absolute necessity, and, and we've reached a tipping point. You know, digest, digestible language is important, but, you know, it's also got to be coupled, in my opinion, with the PR campaign to fight back against the rhetoric that has led to decisions like at the World Trade Organization, based on nothing, based on lies. And that's going to be extremely difficult to overcome. Very quickly, before we run out of time, Dion, people mentioned innovation leading into the summit, during the summit, and in our conversation here this morning. What does that mean? Innovative products, or whether it be pet treats, or, you know, focusing on omega-3 oils, what does innovation mean? We remain a little bit confused with that as well, Patty, because um, we're not lacking innovation. What we're lacking is market access. Um, we've got innovative products. We innovated years ago. For instance, there was you know presentations made by uh, the Marine Institute on a 20 years worth of work that was done, uh, and one of the things that came up was the potential for biodiesel. Well, this is not a new innovative approach because at Carino, we have been fueling our plant 100% for the last three years on seal oil extracted that can't go to market. Because we can't sell our omega-3s for high-end use into world markets, we have been fueling our plant on it as a, as a byproduct of the hunt. And, you know, we're, we're proud to do that. However, it's a shame that this beautiful, wonderful, perhaps the, the highest quality omega-3 in the world is currently being utilized as, as such, but we've kept it going at Carino, and we're looking forward to partnering and expanding. We don't have enough capacity inside Carino to handle the full quota, but we have the expertise, knowledge, and commitment to keep this going. And, you know, we also had presentations. We're now going to enter into a clinical trial on omega-3 supplementation uh, for its effect on the obesity marker in youth. And if we can show that seal oil uh, supplemented in youth has an impact on the obesity marker, we have an opportunity then to use seal oil to address a global, um, a global issue of uh, type 2 diabetes in youth. So, you know, we've been investing in science. We've innovated years ago. What's required now is the access to the market to the consumers. There are plenty of people in this world that want to buy the tiny bit of material that flows from our, uh, our quotas. And it is our first objective to work now to achieve the quotas. Then it's our objective to implement whatever steps are necessary to process uh, the products that could result from a population reduction harvest when the data shows that it's required. If science proves in three or four years out that we need to reduce the population further, we can be prepared with markets that can absorb the product so it's not a cost to taxpayers, but a benefit to rural Newfoundland and Labrador, rural communities across Canada, whether it's in Western Canada, Northern Canada, or Eastern Canada. So we're, we're very optimistic, actually. I appreciate the time this morning, Dion. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for your time as well, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. That's Dion Dakins. He's the CEO at Carino Processing. Uh, let's take a break. We'll make it back. Michelle's in the queue. Wants to talk about the water quality out in Newman's Cove. And there are a variety of different topics of interest to you right after this. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number seven. Michelle, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning. Good morning to you. Doreen, um, I was talking to you a few months back regarding the water quality here in Numa's Cove. Um, since then, I've caught a public meeting. Uh, Craig Purdy was in attendance, along with 
at the time, the local service district. Uh, all options were discussed. Uh, apparently, there was $250,000, I think, allotted for due repairs to the lines in the cold. Uh, apparently now that's all been put on hold. Our committee, local service committee, folded. Now, I think there's still a few committee members in place that have been out trying to do repairs to the leaks and stuff like that. But the thing is now, I'm here. I'm still in the same situation I was before I'm not stuck I'm on the end of the line. I'm getting no water. When I do get water, it's just dribbles coming through my tap. I can't bathe in the bathtub or get a shower. I have to get a sponge bath in my bathroom sink by boiling my kettle. I have to boil my water and log my water or boil my water for pretty much everything. I still have to take my laundry to Melrose to my sister's to have washed or to my mom's in Bonavista, which I shouldn't have to do. And it's to the point, I can't take it anymore. My nerves are getting down. I've complained and complained. I've been reaching out to Craig Party. Craig never returns my calls. But I have to say, a couple days ago, I was talking to Craig's assistant, Jane, which she talked to me for a bit. Uh, It's been my, well, I've heard through the grapevine, we'll say, that apparently now, this money that the government did allocate is put on hold because the committee now is trying, along with Craig Party, to get enough money to move the water system to Round Pond. I think that's the pond, which is beyond Hill Pond, which we currently get our water supply. Right now, there's no chlorine system. I had stats come from Krista Skinner a few days back stating that the water, there's still a ball order on the water. The magnesium levels are really high. The sulfur levels are really high. And, like, here's the government expecting the people of Numenskov to continue using this water. I don't have an answer to that, but a very quick question for you, Michelle, is why is it that at the end of the line you're not getting any water? Is there been a, a specific reason offered to you as to why that's the case? Apparently, they tell me it's because I'm at the end of the line. Simple as that. So each time there's a leak or a break in the system, the, the mud and the dirt that up that goes through the line, it's all being pushed back in the line to where I my lawn starts. There's a flush out out in my yard, which is supposed to prevent artists from coming into my line. But apparently there's not enough water coming through the lines to even get to my flush out. So, like, you know, like, it's time for the government to step up and do something for the people. Like, there's about, what, there's about 20 houses on the end of this pole that right now we're just getting dribbles of water when we do get water. 
I'll follow up. Okay. I'll follow up with your member, see if he has any more information he can share. And I suppose then it's on to the department because if you're LSD folded, you don't have any municipal representation, then I guess it's either Mr. Party and or the department proper. And I can do that and see if I can get you any information, Michelle. How's that? Uh, we greatly appreciate it, but right now, like, I want to know, like, is the government going to do anything to help the people of Lumisquave? Like, this is going on lying and all. Okay. Let's see what I can you find know. out. Okay, thank you. Uh, you're any, anytime, Michelle. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Okay, thank you. Bye. Let's see what we can do. I'll follow up with Mr. Party's office. Let's go to line number one. Jillian, you're on the air. Uh, hi, Patty. Um, hi. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Welcome to the show. Um, thank you. So the reason I'm calling is to bring attention to a really great website. Um, so I weekly kind of demonstrate about making long-term mental health care more accessible to people. It's something that's important to me. Um, so there is a great website. It's called taxfreetherapy.ca. So I'll probably mention it a couple more times. But basically, among mental health care providers in Canada, counselors and psychotherapists are the only mental health professionals who are required to collect GST. So any other counseling psychotherapy providers are exempt from GST, including psychologists or social workers, but just due to a technicality in the way that the Excise Tax Act in legislation is written, um, counselors and psychotherapists are not included in this. So it's basically due to the way that they're designated um, in order uh, for the uh, to receive exemption. Um, there is a requirement that the provincials, the provinces regulate the prof- uh, profession in question with the same provincial designation. So counseling and psychotherapy meets this requirement, but because of the five provinces using different titles. So three call the service counseling therapist and two refer to it as psychotherapist despite having the same scope of practice, so it's identical. But because of that technicality in the wording, they are, they have to, they have, they're not exempt from GST and therefore they are taxing their patients. Um, so there's a bill it's C218 that is trying to um, get this amended. So what they want to do is add counseling and psychotherapy practitioners to the list of eligible practitioners and add counseling psychotherapy services to the list of tax-exempt services. So this website that I'm mentioning, it's called taxfreetherapy.ca, gives you all of this information, and it's a beautiful well-designed website that will link um, to a petition. And the petition is very easy to use. And personally, I can't stand having to like make accounts or register or anything like that, but it's, it doesn't require anything. So it's literally a minute of just putting in your name, phone number, and postal code and signing the petition. They also on this website have the ability to send an email to your member of parliament um so the email is actually already pre-written so i did that i'm uh, my member of parliament is Charles rogers so i was able to just basically fill in some blanks um and address an email that's professionally written to Charles rogers to bring this to their attention um and it's very easy to use and it's um just something that i think everybody or i want 
to be made aware of is that anybody within the province or across the country can just go to taxfreetherapy.ca to support this petition for a great cause. The letter not only goes to your own member of parliament, but also to the finance minister, Christopher Freeland, which I think is interesting. I opened up the petition. Yes. It was a very simple click. And I mean, for better or worse, there's always going to be some private offerings in healthcare, including mental health in Canada. I think for the worse, I don't think that that should be a requirement for people to have to come out of pocket. It kind of divides the haves and the have-nots to access to care. And I know that you've been doing these weekly protests with our friend Christy and bravo to you and her and everyone else who participated in. And, you know, people say, you know, maybe some quietly thinking, you know, we've got a revenue problem in the country given all the borrowing. Okay, you back the GST, HST off of those two services for counseling therapists or psychotherapists, it adds up to 0.004%. So let's not pretend this is some big revenue side complication. We shouldn't be paying tax on these types of services. And if it's technicalities based on labeling, then that should be easily overcome. Let's hope that it has the success that it just requires. And these are the no-brainers, right? Sometimes things like this happen. And, you know, with the disjointed nature of healthcare delivery right across the country, you know, we need some more federal leadership on this stuff. And this is a good place for us to start. I know it's always going to be a provincial jurisdiction, a provincial authority, and that's probably the right way to do it. But let's level the playing field across the country. It can't be different in different places, regardless of what we're talking about. So I'm glad you told me about this. I had no idea that that was the case. But now that I do, I'll be happy to promote taxfreetherapy.ca more than just this phone call. Perfect. And as as it says on the site, I mean, for anybody listening, it says there one in four people are affected with mental illness. So if you yourself are not personally afflicted, you may not think, well, I don't need this, so I'm not going to bother. But there's a very good chance there's one you may in the future, but there's somebody close by that does need this and it will benefit by saving them up to, you know, fifteen, twenty, thirty dollars a session, which is a huge savings, especially right now in our economy. And just as furthermore, like just as a aside, but if there are any provincial politicians or any MHA MHAs that are listening, you know, they can maybe want to bring this forward to their party, you know, to bring forward a motion to maybe if they can do something to get the ball rolling, at least to move, remove the provincial portion of the GST that is currently being applied. So if, you know, if it takes a while for this petition to go through federally, maybe there is a provincial way to as well, at least lower the percentage right now for, you know, Newfoundland, um, people that are availing of counseling or psychotherapy services. We used to be saying it's one in five Canadians impacted. Now we've very quickly made its way to one in four. The most recent numbers for collective numbers uh, on this website is 5.3 Canadians reported they needed help with their mental health. In 2017, you know that number has increased exponentially over the last two and a half years in particular. Uh, Jillian, thanks for making time and telling us about taxfreetherapy.ca. And to you and Christy and your friends who continue to do what you're doing, keep it up. All right, thank you so much. You're welcome. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. All right, break time. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Keith, you're on the air. Hey, how's it going, Patty? Doing okay. How you doing? Not too bad. I mean, it's, uh, again, I'm calling back in because of this, uh, you know, the merry-go-round we're on of, uh, you know, public, uh, you know, our our leaders saying that they have no power to uh, basically enact the things that we need to take care of our province, especially our kids. So a uh, high level of concern on my part uh, due to what we're seeing in the, you know, the landscape across the country, which is 
you know, wild amounts of overstrain on healthcare, especially pediatric hospitals. I see the numbers. Uh, I guess it's encouraging at this moment in time that the folks at the Janeway say they are not over capacity. And I don't know if we're going to see the old two-week lag that we've been talking about for years here about whether it be COVID or anything else making its way to the province. I mean, I don't even know what I'm seeing out in the general public. Pardon me. I know what I'm seeing in the general public. I don't know what you see insofar as masking or any, you know, implementation of public health measures, regardless of Dr. Fitzgerald or anyone else told you to continue to do them. And I'm not sure what we're seeing in schools. In the school where my wife teaches, there are some children wearing masks, and I see them as they make their way to and from school. So I don't know what the right thing is, but my confusion regarding Dr. Fitzgerald yesterday is saying that she doesn't have the power or something doesn't constitute a public health emergency. I don't know if anyone asked what constitutes, uh, who has the power or what constitutes a public health emergency because that that sounds kind of great to me for whatever. Some people are applauding it. Some people are decrying it like you are this morning. So I don't even know what those thresholds are. Well, see, this is my issue. I mean, she, this is the second time she's gone on the, you know, the news and stated this and it's not true. So in the Public Health Protection and Promotion Act, it clearly states that they have the power to enact mandates to protect public health. So uh, regardless of the, you know, the, the emergency measures being declared or not, which in my opinion never should have been relaxed and canceled and you know, celebrate COVID's over, uh, the, the problem that I have is uh, since the pandemic began, uh, Dr. Fitzgerald has told us that they base their decisions on what's going on, not just here, but everywhere else. So, if you know, if the town next to you, very close by, is on fire and, you know, burning to the ground from a forest fire, you, you know, you, you might have a fire ban in your town, right? You might take some proactive measures to make sure that, you know, whatever suffering that the town next to you is having uh, isn't duplicated in yours. So, so w- basically what they're saying is because our hospitals aren't overflowing right now with kids, which, you know, maybe the Janeway isn't, but I know, like, Anyone who's going to the hospital right now or in the last couple of months knows you're waiting, you know, a wild amount of time to get in and see somebody. So if you know that this is going on in the pediatric hospitals and in the, you know, in that youth population all over the country, all over North America, pretty much all over the world, uh, why would you? not be proactive in in your management of that so it's kind of like boasting like well our health health you know our health care can handle the strain we can handle it no big deal it just seems kind of uh you know ridiculous to not take every measure to not even get to that strain to get to that threshold you know because if your vehicle can go 160 you don't want to you know go 160 just to see if the engine's going to blow um but but what we're seeing now is you know she's she's uh deflecting the responsibility by saying no i don't have the power to enact this when she clearly does and uh not taking this proactive measure when you know since the pandemic started all we've heard is while we're what we're doing is looking at what's going on in other areas other provinces other jurisdictions and that only seems to be, uh, you know, the case when those things, uh, you know, work towards what they want to do. So if they want to end measures, then, yeah, well, we're looking at what every other province did. But uh, if we want them reinstated, re-inst- inst- uh, we're not seeing this happen, you know, looking at the warning signs. So the warning signs are a big deal, but the, if they're reducing measures, then, yeah, we, we you know, they're jumping off a bridge. We should do that, too. Um, I, I just don't agree with the lack of proactive 
uh, you know, management, and it's very concerning. Okay, respond to some of the standard pushback that I hear and you hear, because I do see the threads <laughs> on your social media feed. It's really quite something. Um, sure. So, you know, with the masking and the quote-unquote lockdown, some of which were real, some of which are made up, um, yep. and the fact that we're seeing uh, this surge or spike in respiratory illnesses, whether it be RSV, COVID, or whatever, is because children have not been exposed, and consequently their immune systems are being caught off guard. What's your reaction? Because I see that and hear that all the time. Oh, this is like this is the new phenomenon. This is the deflection uh, statement that has been put out there. Um, you know, uh, first of all, it's 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 not based in science. It's just you know, well, this is why. Um, so what we're seeing is that places like Sweden, Texas, uh, Florida, uh, Oklahoma, all these places had barely any safety you know measures put in place they didn't do masking they uh, i think in florida uh, ron DeSantis made it illegal to make, to have masking in schools and they're having a huge rsv surge right now so it's so bad in some of those places that they're telling people to keep their kids home um if they have uh, like young siblings at home because there's so much rsv in those communities they don't want them bringing it home to the young siblings who are more prone to severe outcomes from that so uh, uh, Bernice Hillier actually did a great interview on CBC Morning yesterday on the radio, and she talked to Colin Furness, who's a uh, basically he's an immune uh, specialist uh, expert in the field, and you know basically he dispelled that whole theory. So um, you know because our, our lockdowns weren't uh, you know they didn't last years. Right. So our kids were out and about and they were interacting with each other last year. Yeah, there was a, a mask mandate, but those kids weren't all wearing masks when they went home. They, they were going to social things, you know, in their own social circles. Uh, you know, so to to make that uh, claim that kids were all separated, you know, and never interacted, never breathed each other's air for so long. Uh, you know, it's just, it's not, it doesn't have a basis in... Yeah, I mean, know. they were hanging out and going to birthday parties and going to minor yeah. sports and going to totally. dance class and stuff. I know it to be true because yeah. I have nephews who lived it. Um, yeah. uh, Keith, I appreciate the time this morning. I'm actually considering inviting Dr. Fitzgerald on to take on some of these, whether it be supportive of not bringing back a mandate and or questions that you and others are posing, just to get a better understanding because, you know, sometimes uh, many people are having a hard time dealing with or talking about the variety of inputs here. Like whatever kids were masked last year. And also the risk of reinfections and what that means long term. Because, you know, all these things have to be considered. It doesn't make you a government propagandist to ask all the questions of all the moving parts because this is not a political issue. This is a public health issue. So I'm going to see if I can figure out uh, if and when we can make time with Dr. Fitzgerald. And I appreciate yours this morning. All right. Thanks, Patty. Take Take care. care. Bye-bye. You you too. So, you know, again, I do, I guess it's just nature of the beast these days. Everything is just so highly and hyper-politicized that sometimes it's hard to sift through the weeds. You know, if, for instance, uh, if someone like Keith would have hoped for a mask mandate to be reinstated here today, all of a sudden that makes you a socialist or something. And if you are completely opposed to it because your party is opposed to it, like sometimes... 
I think it's in all our best interests if we back out some politics, especially when we talk about health. It, it's always been a bit confusing to me, but anyway, maybe I'm easily confused. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Angela's there to talk about the sale of churches, and also the leader of the opposition, David Brazel, is in the queue as well. We'll hear from him after this. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. And now, welcome back. Okay, let's go. Line number four, second warrant to the PC member for Conception Bay, East Bell Island. He's the leader of the official opposition. That's David Brazel. David, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty, and uh, thank you for this opportunity. I, uh, I wanted to get on and personally thank, uh, you know, the thousands of people who reached out to me while I was going through my uh, e- uh, healthcare emergency situation. Uh, and particularly acknowledge those who reached out with their thoughts and prayers. You know, it makes you feel good that the people of this province here uh, really got each other's back. And we saw that, what happened on the southwest coast, and I personally experienced that uh, with uh, my uh, medical emergency there. But I also wanted to acknowledge uh, my house leader, Barry Patton, and their caucus for, you know, taking the helm there and ensuring that the people's issues got brought to the forefront in the House of Assembly. But I particularly want to acknowledge the health professionals, uh, the dozens that, uh, you know, I had the privilege of uh, being serviced by and being taken care of by uh, and having a, a good conversation, the doctors, the nurses, the dietary individuals, all of the other x-ray technicians, all the particular healthcare professionals, all across the board do an amazing job once you get into our health care facilities. But I heard from them. I had six days to talk to nursing students, to uh, interns, to uh, doctors and and to, uh, you know, RNs and nurse practitioners about some of the challenges. And we still have challenges. We'd have quality health care when you're in an emergency situation. But we need to find ways to address those particular issues uh, and, you know, to move that in the right direction. I had the opportunity as I was easing back over the last number of weeks to attend the nurses rally and got a real eye opener there. I thought I knew exactly some of the challenges, but talking to the leaders there and a number of the uh, nurses that were in attendance there uh, give you a real eye opener of some of the challenges that they face and the impact it has on them, which in turn has an impact on our access to the quality health care. So I wanted to acknowledge that. I also wanted to acknowledge the fact that there's been a lot of discussion around a cardiac center of excellence, and I think it's a, it's a wonderful idea. I think knowing, you know, the issue that we have with uh, uh, heart and stroke situations in Newfoundland and heart disease, that we need to be focusing particularly on uh, the challenges that we have in there, and having our own center of uh, cardiac excellence would be a benefit. And I talked to some of the, the specialists there, Dr. Connors and Dr. Parfrey, uh, and got a real understanding of exactly how this could work and, and benefit the people of the province. And, and well, you know, we all understand that, you know, we're unique here in the fact that we've managed to develop, and I give credit to the, uh, the doctors and nurses and the particular uh, process there, to be able to send our patients out of Newfoundland Labrador so that they can uh, indeed get access to health care. But the issue has to be here. If those provinces have found a way to not only provide services for their own uh, citizens, but also be able to provide services for us, then that speaks volumes that we're not doing something here. We should be able to find a mechanism that works to keep people engaged in health care and access to health care here in Newfoundland and Labrador. 
That sounds about right. But how is that achieved? Because we've figured out a couple of things in short order here. It's not just about money. For some, absolutely. It's, you know, the rate of pay is probably the first question that you will ask when you're looking for any type of job. But for many that we hear from all the time, it isn't that. So how do we either manage the people who are currently working with us and for us, keep them around, as opposed to the numbers that have left, whether it be radiation oncologists or radiation therapists, for instance. So I, I, I'm not asking because it's a gotcha, but I've been trying to rack my brain by listening to different people and different healthcare professionals and the struggles they're facing and work-life balance and being willing to commute two hours a day uh, rather than be mandated overtime. So I just don't know where the solution lies because if it was just about money, we'd be a long way down the road to solving what is absolutely a crisis for so many people in the province. You're 100% correct. And that was the conversations I had for those six days, particularly uh, when I could, you know, dig a little deeper and have conversations. It is about work-life balance. It's about recruiting enough numbers so that the stress is not on a small group to be able to, to provide that service continuously. It's about having some stability, you know, permanent workers with benefits in this. It's about being able to give them an opportunity to go back and upgrade, uh, to have some advancement within the system. Uh, it's about having other mechanisms there and partnerships and not operating in silos, but working as a collective approach there to ensuring that health care is offered uh, in a mechanism that benefits everybody and that the healthcare workers have the opportunity to use their expertise. If it's pharmacists, if it's paramedics, if it's nurse practitioners or all the other health professionals, how they can offset some of the pressures on one particular group. So, uh, you know, I got a real understanding of, you know, what we need to do. Is it a quick fix? No. Is it, you know, one uh, particular approach? No. But we need to be able to move things, you know, very quickly and listen to the professionals. I mean, the nurses' union will tell you exactly, you know, where they need to go and some of the solutions there. Part of it, it may be financial, but a lot of it is about the administrative process, the inclusion process, and the uh, responsibility process and the scope of work. We look at some of the other things that need to be done there. We can be doing a lot of things here, you know, what virtual care means, how we use our, you know, health centers in rural and remote areas in Newfoundland and Labrador. So, you know, it gave me a better uh, awareness. Do I think it can be solved overnight? No. But I do think we need to take care of emergency things. And one of the emergency things are our emergency rooms in particular areas. If you don't have access immediately, then that becomes a life-threatening situation that I think needs to be addressed immediately. Fair enough. Um, you know, the scope of practice thing, I think, is something that's really, you know, the low-hanging fruit. I know there's a lot of pressure coming from the various representative groups about the territorial issue. But you mentioned virtual care. We had Dr. Todd Young on the show one day earlier in the week. You know, talk about the fact that there's a cap on the number of virtual visits that doctors can handle each day, as opposed to if it's appropriate for virtual care to be the go-to option for you and your ailment, whether it be continuity of care and or an initial consult with Dr. Young or others, why are we capping that? You know, because if that's going to be beneficial, because not everyone's close by the next offering, we know the emergency room closures and clinic closures and family doctors that are no longer in one community or another, and they've been there for decades or centuries. So why do we have something like that in place? If virtual care is going to be part of it, let's make it easily accessible and available. Agree 100%. And, and it's a new approach to healthcare. And you've got people like Dr. Todd Young, who's taken the lead on this and has come up with a mechanism that, you know, province wide could be beneficial to people. But it's another example. It's the same 
same way on you know and why we're not doing cataract surgeries on the west coast to get the the list done and out of the way so that we have a better approach and the wait times are not there and people get health care in a timely fashion as part of that process so but we're going to continue to to keep pushing on on health care but patty i want to talk about a couple of other things since i've eased back into and i'm back at the helm now the pc party and back full-time here in the office i had a very interesting and informative uh, meeting yesterday with the uh, german ambassador around partnerships in Canada, but particularly Newfoundland and Labrador. And the hydronet process and you know green energy and wind energy here is one part of it, but it's only a small part of what the, what they want to do in developing partnerships here. As, as it was explained in the conversation, I mean, you know, they're one of the most stable democratic countries in Europe, and they see Canada as one of the most stable democratic countries in North and South America, and they want to develop those partnerships, and they see the value of Newfoundland and Labrador, and it's about other mineral development. And it's about looking at if hydronet is going to be done, it has to be done with the environment, you know, as one of the cognizant issues to be addressed, has to be done based on the principle that Newfoundlanders and Labradorians have to be benefactors here. And I got a a good uh, feeling from the ambassador that they they want to be good stewards and good partners uh, with Canada, but particularly with Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, She's going to have some continuing uh, information sessions here. I know last night she met with a number of the proponents who are proposing some of the hydronet uh, uh, industry type of proposals here. So I like the fact there's more engagement here. That's one of the things that we've been critical of in Newfoundland and Labrador, particularly this administration, has been more open and transparent so people are more informed and if they've got an issue, they can bring it to the forefront and hopefully that can be addressed immediately and then that in itself then will solve some of the issues as we move forward on you know, clean energy and transitioning from you know, fossil fuels as we move uh, in that direction. I'm not trying to be down in the mouth about any of that stuff because I'm not. But we know what's in it for them. I'm not so sure we've been told really what's in it for us. Because, you know, I I know we've got the land. I know we have the wind. I know we have the water. I know we have the deep sea ports. But construction jobs are one thing. Long-term operational jobs seem to be very few, even on some of the bigger projects. So what exactly is in it for us? And I don't think that's an unfair question because we've got to safeguard ourselves here, you know, whether it be how we approach the crown land. And not only where, but, you know, if indeed one of these projects goes sideways, that land should not be in the hands of the, the proposal of a wind farm. So, and is there such a thing as a royalty? And what are the actual push, push uh, pardon me, the uh, upside for the community? You know, like $10 million from World Energy GH2 for community-minded projects inside a multi-billion dollar project. So that's the question that I'm still struggling with is what exactly is in it for us? Exactly. I'm smiling here, Patty, because those exact same questions were the things that I posed to the ambassador yesterday about, you know, if, would there be and how can we develop and we should be able to develop a royalty regime. How do we get long-term benefits here? What are the uh, key partnership developments here that ensure we still own the majority of the assets here and we have control over those? And and she seemed to be you know, very open to it, and she talked about some of the partnerships that Germany have developed all around the world where it's, it's a good working partnership that the you know, jurisdiction there are benef- benefactors of it all, that they don't take um, control over the assets as part of that, and that there's long-term investment and long-term development. So this is a good first step. The fact that what I really liked from her was her uh, approach, and as she says, the Chancellor's approach, is about being open uh, and transparent with any project that's going on uh, anywhere in the world, but particularly now that they've been to Newfoundland Labrador, they see now the potential in all kinds of other uh, development, mineral development and some of the other uh, partnerships.
alternatives that can be developed here. So I saw that as a positive, um, you know, first step from a, a, an open and transparent process. I'm going to go to Ottawa and meet with her and some other of her uh, German delegations early in the new year to get a better understanding of, of where they're going. Uh, but they're open to do business in Newfoundland and Labrador for a multitude of reasons. Uh, one, because of the, you know, the uh, lack of stability in some of the countries in Europe and the fact now that they've made uh, some inroads in Canada and got a better understanding of, of what you know we offer here and the skill set that we have in Newfoundland and Labrador. But again, I emphasized to her yesterday, and I'll continue to do this, and I would hope the Premier and his cabinet will do the same. The people in Newfoundland and Labrador have to be the key benefactors here, uh, and I heard that at the M&L meetings a couple of weeks ago. We need to be able to ensure that municipalities have the services that they can provide, has the tax base, and that any development around them has to include their input and their business plan and their development plan for the people of the province. Appreciate the time, Dave. Take care, Patty. You Take too. Care. Bye-bye. It's David Brazel, leader of the opposition, and of course the PC member for Conception Bay East, Bell Island. Angela, I see you there. You want to go one right away, Dave? All right, before we go to the break, let's go to line number one. Pam, you're on the air. Um, hi, Mr. Daly. I was wondering, I have a refrigerator that's in perfect condition that I've been trying to donate to an association, and I'm not having any luck with it. I wonder, would you be able to know anywhere where I could call... There's that, uh, the, okay, I was just going to suggest home again, but Dave apparently already gave you that number. That might be a fine home for it. And you never know, maybe a listener just uh, will have their ears perked up here, hearing that you've got a perfectly good fridge to give away. Yeah, I'm I'm downsizing to one half the size because I have it in my walk-in pantry and it's just a big sore thumb there. It's too big. And and I just, uh, I have one ordered and it's going to be delivered today. So now I have to put my refrigerator out in the middle of my kitchen. (laughs) So I really need to, to go somewhere as fast as I can. Okay, try home again when you hang up with me. And if anyone calls me and says, I'm happy to take that fridge, we'll get in touch with you right away. Yes, yeah, so will I give the other man the uh, my phone number? Yes, please. Okay. So, Dave, you have her number, right? Yeah, Dave already wrote it down. Oh, he got the number. Oh, yep. okay. Thank you so much, Mr. Daly. My pleasure. Where are you, where are you uh, first I'm off? I'm in Portugal Cove. Okay. only about 10, 15 minutes outside the city. Yeah, whereabouts in the Cove? Um, Mercer's Road up Western Gully Road. Oh, yeah. I've got a uh, relationship with Nary's Pound Road. Yes, I know. They live in the road further. Yes, I know. I'm, I'm on that, uh, that road going up. Right, oh, it's nice to have you on, Pam. If, if someone calls us, we'll call you. Thank you so much. I hope they do. I appreciate it. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. All right, now we'll take that break. And Angela, you are next. She wants to talk about the sale of churches. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number five. Good morning, Angela. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Just Angela calling. Um, I called you earlier in August about the sale of the Catholic churches in the Placentia area. Well, I'd like to bring to attention now to the people who have people, especially parents and husbands, who are buried in a Catholic cemetery. You may not have access after the churches are sold. I found that out firsthand. I wrote the Archbishop, Peter Hunt, there September 6th, and yesterday I received a letter, and this is what it says. Dear Miss Power, 
thank you for your letter of September 6, 2022, regarding your concerns ongoing access to the cemetery located behind St. Teresa's Church in Ship Harbor. I am grateful to you for bringing this concern to my attention, and I am forwarding your letter and this reply to court appointed monitor and our archdiocese legal counsel. They, so day two will be aware of the need for a right-of-way to the cemetery to be included as a contract of a sale of St. Teresa's Church in Ship Harbor. And so just let me make sure I know what we're talking about, Angela. You're losing access to what in particular? That Catholic cemetery where my parents are buried to if I didn't write the letter. So I don't even, because the cemeteries were backed out right away and they weren't going to be sold. There was no, not going to be any development. So the concern there was with the sale of the property, there would simply be no access point. Is exactly. that Okay, fair enough. And it says, with gratitude for your input on this matter and with prayers for God's blessing for all those who have been wounded by abuse and its consequences. Yours in Christ, Peter Hunt. So you did what you had to do and you got the outcome. Yeah. But how many people, Patty, is out there that have relatives buried in a Catholic cemetery behind a Catholic church may think, oh, we're free and clear. Once the church is sold, we'll have access. Well, where some of my family uh, family members are buried down in Holy Rosary in Portugal Cove, I know for sure that the only way to get to the uh, cemetery is right through the main corridor of the church property itself. That is so. exactly the way Ship Harbor is. Yeah, so I didn't really think that, you know, there would be a problem with going to the cemeteries if they were not going to be part of the sale. But I suppose you're right. I mean, access is access. And if you don't have it, you know, it would, I guess, be incumbent on the community or the property developer to create a smaller access point so that people can indeed visit their loved one's grave. And you can have the cemetery masses and all those types of things. So, yeah, that's an important consideration. I don't know what the status is in Holy Rosary. I guess I can try and find out. But I was practically begging Ship Harbor to buy back the church so before I wrote this letter so that we could have access to the cemetery mm -hmm. so my children could still have access to their grandparents' grave. And thanks be to God, Patty, I wrote that letter. I'm glad you did, and I appreciate the update this morning, Angela. You're welcome. Take good care. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, let's try to get the breakdown time. When we come back, uh, I believe there's an upcoming vigil for those who have lost family members for, uh, due to suicide, death by suicide. Kim Kelly's a survivor of suicide loss. Amelia O'Day is the executive director at Rush Counseling Services. We're going to talk about that issue right after this. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number two and three. Say good morning to Kim Kelly and Amelia O'Day, who I know better is the, the executive director at the RUA Counseling Services, not the Rush Counseling Services. Good morning to you both. Welcome to the show. 
Good morning. Thank you for having us. Happy to do it again this year. Tell us about what's coming up before we broaden the conversation. Okay, so I'll start. This is Kim. So, of course, Patty, uh, the vigil is coming up on December the 11th, but that has nothing to do with RUA, although RUA helps us promote and, and do that. But I'll talk about that a little bit later. The main purpose of calling today, I guess two purposes. One is that there's a day of hope for survivors of suicide loss. So um, the Saturday, the third Saturday um, in November is always the international day to remember people who or not to remember people, but for survivors of suicide loss. So it's for people like myself who's lost loved ones to suicide. And I'm so thrilled that Rua has come on board to host the very first uh, virtual day, like afternoon, of sharing stories and resources and healing. So it's happening this Saturday, November 19th at 1 o'clock p.m. There will be a virtual link for those who register. It's a free event. And to register, Register. People have to email info at rua, R-U-A-H, counseling.ca, and counseling has two L's. So, of course, we can provide, you can put that up on your website, I believe, Patty, um, afterwards. But one of the thing, one of the reasons why we're having this day is, you know, when a suicide loss happens, you know, suicide loss is so complicated, right? So when somebody loses a loved one through any means of death, there's always the normal feelings of grief, right? So the sadness and the, you know, the pain and the despair sometimes or, you know, the sadness and all of those things the loneliness, right? But when it comes to suicide, it's so complicated. You know, there's often different family reactions, uh, no opportunity to say goodbye, you know, little or no invitations to talk about their loved ones because people don't always understand, right? So when somebody loses a loved one to cancer, you know, someone is there to talk about, oh my gosh, the great life they lived or all those things. But suddenly when suicide happens, a lot of those things, people just don't know how to start the conversation and so this coming Saturday is a day for people who've lost loved ones those bereaved by suicide to come together and have a conversation to talk about you know what feelings they're going through what has been working for them right um, what uh, what hopes they have what kind of resources uh, you know that are out there in the community to support them and and what kind of healing ideas they'll they'll have for themselves and to be honest um, you know there's so little opportunity for people to do that now of course patty you know tina davies is one of those strong proponents out there in the community and she's always been one of those people to have um a, you know a support group so i'm very happy that uh Ru, um is also hosting an eight-week support group in the winter so we're hoping that this saturday is an opportunity for people to have a chat with what they'd like to see in a suicide loss group uh, you know, and this is a great opportunity for people to get some real support to kind of talk about their loved one and, and all of those things. So I just want to give a shout out, uh, I guess, you know, there's lots of people out there doing some things and, and lots of you know, more attention has been drawn to mental health and suicide loss and all of those things. I mean, our, our own government, the Department of Health and Community Services, has started our Path of Resilience, an action plan to promote life and permit, prevent suicide in Newfoundland and Labrador. And Tina, of course, is on that, Joy Smith, myself, a number of other um, survivors of suicide loss. 
but uh, you know we need to be doing more, right? I mean, suicide prevention, suicide prevention, which is what we're doing on Saturday, is everyone's responsibility. It's a community responsibility. And as a social worker myself, and as a survivor of loss, I'm so grateful to Rua because they're taking up the torch for supporting um, survivors of suicide loss. And um, so I'm really happy to welcome Emilio Day, the executive director of Rua, to talk about the services and and the unique kind of things that they're doing at Rua. And so I'll just welcome um, Amelia on there. Thank you so much, Kim. And of course, we're so uh, grateful to have Kim with us as well um, and to be sharing her expertise and to make this important connection for us. So I guess a little bit about RUA. We are a nonprofit community counseling agency. So we provide individual, couple, and family counseling to anyone who's 16 years of age and older. So we provide counseling uh, that's client-focused and goal-oriented. And we really, our big values are around um, providing timely and accessible and affordable access to services, especially for those who wouldn't be able to otherwise access services. So um, we offer uh, we offer also some psychoeducational and supportive groups, which uh, we run in the fall, winter, and spring. Um, so all the any information about any of our groups or the programs that we're offering can be found on our website at ruacounseling.ca. Um, and of course, one of the things that makes Rua uh, quite special, from in my opinion, is that um, so we provide counseling to people who uh, can't can pay the standard fee for service, which right now is $90, and it's a very competitive rate in the community, where if you go to private agencies in the community, generally the sessions can start anywhere from $120 upwards to $160 a session um, or more. So we offer a competitive rate so that those who are looking to access private services and have health benefits to cover the cost of those services, they can uh, access counseling at our center. But we also are able to provide counseling to people who aren't able to access private services. So we offer um, a sliding scale for reduced fee services as well as no fee services. And depending on one's income, their net income, they can access services on that sliding scale to ensure that finances don't interfere with their ability to seek mental health and wellness counseling services. So, um, you know, we're very proud of our ability to kind of stand out in the community and have this dual stream approach where, you know, everybody gets the same access to quality counseling services. What we know right now is that um, mental health services are in critical demand in our community and wait times for public services are quite high. Um, So RUA takes great pride in our ability to um, provide services for no fee and also have very low wait times compared to the public services in our community. Grieving a loss of a loved one, everyone takes it on differently, regardless if it was uh, unforeseen, a car accident, or if it was from a long battle with cancer or death by suicide. So how do you encourage people to talk about it? Because the same thing pops in my mind every time we have these types of conversations. I was at the funeral home. Uh, I was a friend of mine. I knew what had happened, but someone who was there to see some other 
our loved one who was lost, popped in because they recognized some of our faces. And when they asked, what happened? I didn't know he was sick. No, he died by suicide. The hush was immediate. The embarrassment for the folks who asked the question, which is so unnecessary because it's an open, honest conversation required if we're going to be able to grieve publicly and in our own quiet moments. So I'll never forget that. You know, and it really spoke to me that there is still a real lingering stigma and uh, air of embarrassment surrounding this topic. So how do we talk about how to grieve? I guess first off is to be honest with what happened. And, you know, not to start with the blaming yourself and should have seen the signs and those types of things, which I know is very common. So how do you talk to people about how to grieve or tips, recommendations, uh, advice and how they they can and should approach it? Well, so one of the things, I mean, I guess that when a suicide happens, I mean, you know, family members, some, even in my own family, I mean, I remember my own dad was quiet. He died by cancer afterwards, but, you know, just very quiet. And, and you know, people aren't always able to say. So what I would encourage people to do is, you know, for that extended family member or, you know, friend or neighbor kind of who was supporting the family who died by suicide, you know, to bring along a journal to the to the um, to the funeral home so that people can write and share stories. I mean, even now, like, on, you know, all the funeral homes and the Evening Telegram, you know, has great opportunities where people can post different things about their loved one. Like, so people, you know, you often see, well, you know, our, our condolences for your loss. So, yes, say those things for sure. But, you know, take those opportunities to share photos, to um to share stories about the loved one, like a favorite memory or something like that. Because the one thing that gets lost when it comes to suicide is that we forget that the person lived, right? So my brother, Brendan, did great things in life. He was, you know, had a Bachelor of Arts. He, um, you know, was a really involved student in, in residence life at Memorial and, you know, and all of those things. And that kind of stuff gets forgotten. So we want to, people, the audience out there, to be encouraged to say, you know, when the person dies by suicide don't forget all of those things that you'd normally do when another death occurs right so write stories share stories and of course I'm asking for a journal or different things like that or maybe a poster board or something or you know send emails or whatever because you know when, when a funeral happens, you know, if they have a visitation at a funeral home or anything like that, people are so consumed with all of the stuff that goes along with any regular funeral. But then it's afterwards, right, that people want to hear those stories. So that's really important to kind of having the legacy of the person who died. Everyone wants to be remembered, right? And there's good things about every person, right? Uh, I'm a social worker, so I work from a strength-based perspective, right? That's one of the perspectives. But certainly that's one of the things we would want to do. I mean, people need to reach out to those who've lost loved ones because they're not able to do it themselves, right? I mean, sometimes, you know, the shock of, of um, you know, people have trouble, you know, the normal things, getting up to shower becomes an ordeal, preparing meals, right? Uh, answering the phone, all of those things. So, uh, you know, all of those things are really important for people to reach out and make an effort because, 
uh, to those who've lost loved ones. So I think there are some important tips that can happen. I mean, get counseling, right? But attend a group, attend a support group that Tina has, attend the suicide loss, um, you know, kind of therapeutic and psychoeducational group that we're going to provide at RUA in the winter. Those things are really important. I mean, there's uh, Dr. Frank Campbell, who does, is, is a suicidologist in, in the state, and he says that the earlier one can reach out for support, you know, the, the earlier that they, their healing can begin, right? So that's really important. I appreciate you both making time for the show this morning. You're welcome to get back in touch. Pardon? Patty, before you go, one more thing. Just Quickly. want to say, you know, uh, because RUA is like a nonprofit and non-charitable, and because they're doing this excellent work for no fee and sliding scale, want to uh, put a challenge out there to the community, you know, that we're looking for donors and benefactors for RUA to continue the great work that we're doing. So, like, a lot of companies have grants and even government and things like that, but, of course, they want you to have a new program. Well, we already have excellent programming happening at RUA, but we need funds to be able to to support that. So if you're a business or a big company and you're looking for someone new to support, you know, give to RUA. Uh, you know, you, you, on the website, you can you can reach out. You know, you can uh, give a donation through info at ruacounseling.ca. And, you know, to make a memory in honor of your loved one or to celebrate a birthday, lots of different things. So we are looking for that support. Patty, we would love to see a telethon, for example, uh, you know, for those who need counseling and to help support the work of RUA. Anyway, just putting it out there for folks and, uh, you know, to support that great work. So thank you so much. And just a reminder that there is a vigil happening uh, on December 11th at 3 o'clock at St. Mark's Church to remember those who died by suicide. So people are welcome to uh, come along to that. I'll come on again to talk about that before that happens. Appreciate the time this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. That's Kim Kelly, of course. She's a survivor of suicide loss and Amelia O'Day at Ruach Counseling. Let's take a break. When we come back, Big Feed Club, the big partnership with DRL Coach Lines, it's in business. Deliveries are happening. Brad Russell, right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Who's up for Big Feed? Me. Line one. Brad, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you doing? Great today. Thanks. How are you doing? Uh, people like us, we don't have bad times, do we? That's what I keep telling myself anyway. <laughs> okay, so we, you and I, I think you and I have discussed this on the program. It's a really great initiative, the Big Feed Club. you got a partnership with DRL Coach Lines. Tell us exactly what's going on. And I, I understand there's been a big surge in people signing up for the service. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we signed a memorandum of understanding with uh, DRL back in June uh, to bring our goods, uh, mostly from Costco, right across the province. And uh, it's been a lot of hard work, uh, a lot of hours punched, but we are finally uh, open for taking orders. Our first orders will be this Friday. Uh, and that is, uh, you can order through our website, uh, www.bigfeedclub.ca, and have Costco goods dropped off to you uh, anywhere between Whitburn and Port of Basque, all the DRL stops in between. So how does it work? I sign up, then what? Uh, you sign up, you add, you add items to your cart like you normally would on an e-commerce website. Uh, you select the, the date and the location you want your goods dropped off to, and it's as simple as that. Uh, and if there's any items that uh, you think should be added, for for example, we added a bunch of uh, Chapman's Bakery products there today. Um, we're happy to add those for folks. If uh, they're at the local Costco, we'll be sure to add them and, and drop them off for you. 
Okay, you know, one of the issues regarding food and food insecurity has been access. So, you know, when people see the constant interruptions by the PUB and up goes the price of fuel, sometimes, I'm pretty sure, what goes by the wayside is that weekly or monthly trip into one of the big box stores from maybe a smaller community that doesn't have them. You know, maybe it was just the getaway, the Sunday drive, the stock up to try to save a few bucks. Then all of a sudden, the savings dwindled because the price to get your vehicle to the store was a big problem. But this one, this really hits the crosshairs, I think, for a lot of folks who are, are missing that trip to whether it be Costco or the big Walmarts or whatever the case may be. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a, it's an interesting partnership because we're, I mean, we're pairing up with public transit uh, to be able to distribute food across the province. And uh, even with uh, the, the cost to, to bring that across the province, typically most products are going to be cheaper than your local grocery store. And uh, we all know that most of the produce at Costco, they have a, an excellent supply chain. Uh, the, the produce and the, the fresh goods typically last longer and they're of, of very high quality. Uh, and not to mention that we, when we send our shoppers into the store, uh, you know, their instructions are, you know, if, if you wouldn't pick this up through your NAN, uh, you, don't, you don't pick it up. <laughs> so we make sure that every single product is personally inspected to ensure the absolute highest quality for, uh, for the people of this problem. It takes a lot of hard work, and when people work, they want to get something in return. So how does the compensation work on your end? Uh, so typically, our markup is around 15 to 20 percent. Now, that varies um, from day to day, uh, as we've all seen the prices of grocery items increase dramatically uh, on, on any given day, week, month. Uh, you know, so there's been some circumstances where uh, we've sold products, we've listed products for a certain amount, amount, and by the time that we've gone to the store to procure them for the customer, that we actually lost money on that product. So, uh, but that is our guarantee. If there is an item and we charge you a particular amount, uh, you're going to get it for that amount. Uh, so it's a it's it's a way to, uh, to to kind of smooth that out. Where do people go if they want to sign up for the Big Feed Club? Uh, you can go to www.bigfeedclub.ca. Uh, good luck with it. Keep us in the loop, Brad. All right. Thank you very much, Patty. Thanks to Dave and the rest of your crew at VOCM for uh, helping us get the word out. Our pleasure. Take care. All right, take care. All right, bye-bye. Uh, you know, that's going to be a good benefit to a lot of folks. Time, you know, the cost of travel, whether it be in the rig or otherwise. Uh, let's go to line number two. Lindy, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning. How's it going? That's kind, you? Uh, not too bad so far. I'm calling about the transfer when you when somebody changes over from uh, oil to electric and goes to sell their oil tank. Yep. That oil tank is uh, only during the, the, the years that left on that oil tank, and the oil tank itself is only good at the residence that it was first put into. It depends on who made you the tank. Transferred. Depends on who made the tank. News to me. Yeah, because we had a fellow call about this exact issue this week. His tank was made by Grandy. That was their company policy. Consequently, the oil company, even after inspection, would not certify that tank. Just after that call, someone sent along a link to how they had sold their tank. I can't remember the brand name of it now. It was a two-in-one polyfiber or something or other. And they were able to have it inspected as they made the transition. The oil company did certify it. So I guess it really depends on the company that made the tank. That's what I've been finding out anyway, because I didn't really know how it worked because I haven't done it. Well, I've been told by a member of uh, the uh, uh, parliament, whatever, here in Newfoundland, that it's, uh, it's a government thing. 
Well, the guy who called, he was quite clear. The oil company told him, in no uncertain terms, they would not certify because Grandy would not uh, live up to the warranty because it did not stay in the residence for which it was first installed. So that's what he told me, and he just lived it. So that's all I can tell you on that one. Okay, but I'd like I said, I, I got a, a, a tank from a neighbor and, and tried to... Uh, Tried to get it. You know, there was there was uh, years left on it. Yeah. You know, and I I, I, I said, well, mine was going to run out, so I'll use this one. And I went to do it, and then found out no, it couldn't couldn't be done. Well, let me see. I'll pull up the thing that Buddy sent me. Uh, selling oil tank. NL. All right. Well, there's actually a page right on North Atlantic itself, and it talks about uh, not only replacing tanks, but selling tanks. There was a little blurb that I saw that came right to me last time. Yeah, anyway, I can't find it right at this very moment, but that's the issue so far as I understand it, because the guy who said it was a grandee and that was the problem that he encountered and his advice was people to find out before they thought they could find uh to buy a tank and find a new home for it in their place so the next guy that emailed said he just went through it and it was no problem based on the company so i'll try to find his note but i've got thousands of notes here so sometimes that's tricky Right. Yes, but I guess the advice ultimately from Buddy was make sure you know before you make the purchase and all of a sudden you got yourself a tank that is of no value to you or anybody else. So that was the advice that he was offering and I thought he was right to do it. So check with the company, check with your oil company, uh, whoever delivers your furnace oil. Uh, If it requires a check with the government, do it all before you spend a, a single cent on an oil tank that might be just out in the yard growing flowers. Yeah, because I was listening to to your program there, and there was a guy came under, and he said he bought a tank off a fella, uh, and and was supposed to be good until uh, 2052, you know, and and to turn around and have to throw that tank away, you know, that that's that's not right. No, the company says that there can be some uh, issues with seals and stuff simply by moving the tank as opposed to having one of their installers do it for you. So that was the rationale offered by that particular company. But that's the, that's the advice, is make sure you know what you're doing before you do it, <laughs> which I think is always probably pretty sound advice before you open up your wallet or your checkbook. So that's the basics as I understand it. Right. Uh, well, I had mine given to me anyway, so it didn't cost me anything. Lucky you. <laughs> Okay, we will see what we can find out from there, you know, if you can get it certified or what. Yeah, I'll see what I can find out, uh, you know, it's, for it's instance. It's not a matter of getting it certified, it's just a matter of getting it transferred from one from one uh, residence to another. Well, ultimately... Because it's already certified. No, it's, it has to go through an inspection and a recertification from your oil company based on the company's parameters. That's what okay. Buddy told me. So yep. that's the basics here. So with a couple of the major oil companies, furnace oil companies here, I'll just send off a couple of quick notes to see where they stand on these types of issues. Maybe they have a list of the types of tanks that people should be wary of purchasing and trying to uh, repurpose them in their own home. I'll, I'll get that info. Okay, sir. Well, thank, thank you very much. Anytime, Lindy. Okay, bye-bye. All the best, bye-bye. The standard check-in with David. How are we doing out there, Dave? All right, today might be a day to join us on the air. The topic, if you haven't heard it and it's of importance to you, all you have to do is give David a shout in the queue and on the air, and away we go. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. And welcome back. Let's go to line one. Rhonda, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good morning. Good morning to you. 
I just wanted to give people some hope about finding a family doctor. Okay. In 2021, May of 2021, I spent the full morning phoning clinics and offices around St. John's area. And at the end of August this year, I actually got a call, and I do have a new doctor. So if you continue to try, you could be lucky, you know, not to give up. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you know, in this neck of the woods where they've established some of the collaborative care clinics, I put myself on the list. It's called Patient Connect NL. It took me a while to get a call, but now I, too, have a family doctor for the first time since I moved back from Alberta in 2000. So, you know, it took me months of waiting for that phone call, but I got it. Now, I know it seems like a massive task to take on to sit down with the phone book or an online registry and call, call after call after call after call get one but people are more and more are getting them i'd like to see an update from the newfoundland labrador medical association because the numbers we were using was 125,000 people without a family doctor i wonder has mm-hmm. that uh, decreased somewhat i don't know if it has or not but i'd like to know well uh, something else that's interesting i had never been without a family doctor i had one when i was making the phone calls but i knew each i had two in, in a year and a half but i knew each one was leaving so i immediately started phoning people phoning offices so like I, I've never been without so I'm, I'm just one of the fortunate ones I guess but and I didn't have two at a time that's not what I'm saying but I was I was very lucky to get one and I think people should continue to try and call I think it's the 211 number is it that's one place where you can turn absolutely yeah. uh, quick question yeah. when you uh, made your way from one doctor to another what happened with your medical records well they're they're, they're online anyway uh, the first the retirement doctor I had, she gave me my records, and I actually have a copy, and I pass it on to my next new doctor. But you don't have to do that anymore because they have everything on file. Yeah, the problem with some of these uh, circumstances is the doctor will be retiring or leaving, whatever the case may be. And if I didn't take it upon myself to get the records, sometimes what they do is they send it to a third party. There's one company in particular in Ontario, and you have to pay a fee for like 300 bucks. We've got to figure out a way to eliminate that problem. Because if you had a family for four, that's a whopping big $1,200 check that you got to write to get your family's medical records. So I just want people to be wary of that. If you know your doctor's leaving, uh, do what Rhonda did off front not only be proactive to find the next doctor but to have the conversation about your medical records maybe you can spare yourself uh, an expense down the road yeah and also uh, i'd like to add i didn't pay for my records from my previous doctor and the new doctor that i have she actually had me in i guess as an interview <laughs> because it, like i didn't have an appointment i had an appointment but she just wanted to meet me to see what what I needed her for and what my conditions were and you know what I mean what my health was like so I found that really interesting and and it was quite relaxing because I didn't have anything going on at the time so it was just a meeting it was lovely I had a similar uh, circumstance because what happened for me was I had an intake phone interview where they simply asked me about, you know, what's going on in my world now and some basic questions about lifestyle and stuff, just so that there was some prep work done in advance to me actually meeting my family doctor for the first time face-to-face. So I guess that's the new process. Oh, it was lovely. And she has a little set of rules, too, so I went home with a sheet of paper of what, <laughs> what not to do. <laughs>
Well, you know, it's a funny thing. I didn't have a doctor for so long, and of course, I only had interactions with the emergency room. Uh, yeah. Bad back was one one such uh, opportunity that I had to go to ER. But since that, blood work, and I got the colonoscopy scheduled, and uh, blood pressure test, and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. So, you know, now all of a sudden, I've got all kinds of appointments. Yeah, that's good. Good so stuff. Very good. We'll take care, and I just hope people don't give up and continue dialing that number. Absolutely. Those Thanks. Numbers. Thanks, Rhonda. Thanks, Patty. Take bye care. Bye. Bye, bye, bye. Yeah, it's probably going to take some elbow grease to maybe find a doctor. And of course, the problem for some people is there might not be even the remote opportunity close by where you live. That's where this five-year plan to establish 35 collaborative care clinics is going to be helpful as long as we have the staff as opposed to just moving around the same people that are working in this clinic to that clinic. That really doesn't solve a whole lot. Let's go to line number three. Norma, you're on the air. Uh, yes, Mr. Daly. I just wanted to tell you that uh, the last lady we were talking about on medical records, mm -hmm. I just want to let you know that the average fee... Uh, typically for doctors, uh, even if you know your doctor is going to leave and you ask for your charts, like we had to pay $120 for our chart before our doctor left. We had to pay that to the doctor. So just wanted to let you know that. And uh, one of those charts was for a senior who only had uh, CPP in all age, okay? I, I was a family member. I went in to assist them, and I, I said to them, are you sure? Do we have to pay the fee? They said, yes, our fee is $120 to get your chart before the doctor leaves. Just to let you know that. Yeah, I knew there was a potential fee inside the clinic itself. The big fee is when all of a sudden that file ends up in a third-party system up in Ontario, and their minimum fee per person is 300 bucks. So that's all I was recommending is people have that conversation before right. they're facing yes. that. Right, and I, I, was, I, actually, I was in that boat, and do you know what? I couldn't retrieve my file. So my file had gone to, an, to Ontario in storage, and the doctor had left, and I wasn't aware that the doctor was leaving. And when I went to try to get my file, I couldn't get it. <laughs> so just to let you know that. <laughs> it's helpful information because, you know, sometimes we get caught off guard. You're not thinking about where my file's going to end up. But, you know, maybe well, every now and then when you speak to the receptionist and or the doctor, just make sure that they're sticking around for the long term so you don't incur some unexpected costs. Because 300 bucks is an awful lot to get your own personal information back. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, if you wouldn't mind, I, I would like to add another uh, another point that's been sort of discussed over your earways, and uh, that's with the uh, with purchasing oil. Um, I've been noticing lately for the last couple of weeks that they've had this advertisement on with um, Ultramar that you would get a two hundred fifty dollar rebate once you bought one thousand dollars worth of oil. Mm -hmm. But I just wanted your listeners to know that that's only for new customers. It's not for existing customers, even though they don't say that. And Ultramar has received hundreds of phone calls from clients saying, hey, we are, you know, we purchase 1,000 liters, yada, yada, yada. How do I get my $250 rebate? And they said, no, that is not for existing customers. The other point onto that, which I would like to add for your listeners, is that at no time will any of these oil companies offer you a senior's discount. But Ultramar will offer you 2.5 cents per liter, but they do not advertise it. It will never show on your bill. And the only way for you to get it is if you think about it and you ask them for it. So 
I'd like for you to, uh, I'd like for that to go out over your airways. I phoned, uh, yeah. I was one of the people that called on the $250 because I thought, you know, they had so many advertisements on about it. And I listened to it very intently. And at no time did it say for only new customers. Yeah, I guess I just uh, inferred that it was for new customers as opposed to some sort of yeah. unexpected perk for their existing customers. But that's an important point yeah. as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and like I said, people can ask for a senior's discount um, and uh, 2.5 cents a liter. And they will they will give it. I asked them at the time. I said, "Well, why don't you offer that to your customers? Why is there nothing in your uh, advertisements, etc.? You know, to say that. Well, if you're a senior, you know, you're entitled to 2.5 cents uh, per liter reduction. And they said, "No, we don't advertise that." And we have no way of knowing if you are a senior or not. And when you do get your new bill, we will not be showing on the bill the senior discount. So. Interesting. <laughs> any, any opportunity to save a buck if you're the supplier, I suppose. But anyway, you've told everybody anyway. now, so the cat's out of the bag. That's right. And they should phone no matter if you're with Ultramar, with you're with Irving, whoever you're with, you know. You should just call and ask because they will never offer it to you. You must ask. The onus is on you to ask. The phones are anyway. now ringing off the hook at the various oil supply companies. <laughs> like they should be. Anyway. Thank you, Mr. Daly. Thanks for all you do. I appreciate the time this morning. Thanks, Norma. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I've now been told that, and I knew this was coming, I think at 10.55 there's going to be the emergency measures uh, test on your phone and on your TV screen and stuff. It didn't happen on my phone, which is weird because I usually do get it, but I I guess it happened because an emailer said that during my conversation with Brad Russell about the Big Feed Club, it went off, and consequently, he missed the last part of the call, which had the information in it. So, what they're doing is the Big Feed Club. They've got a partnership with DRL Coach Lines. If you go to bigfeedclub.ca, you'll get the ins and outs of how it works. And the fact is they're going to uh, carefully select the goods, for instance, mostly at Costco, and they drop them at every DRL coach line bus stop across the province so the info that you can find on it is at bigfeedclub.ca let's take a break don't go away and welcome back to the show well the topic we're going to discuss now will not be music to your ears but it's coming whether we like it or not let's go line number two good morning elizabeth you're on the air Good morning, Patty. Um, I wanted to let your listeners know about an open mic night on Friday evening where people can come and talk about their experiences with snowy and icy sidewalks in St. John's. And today's a good day, I guess, to start talking about that topic. It was slippery on my driveway this morning. That much yeah. I can tell you. So, yeah. you know, the stories are wide and varied. I guess let me start with this. They have expanded the sidewalk clear, snow clearing program here in the city in the recent uh, couple of winters. Is it making it better? Because I don't know if we can ever be perfect, but we've got to strive to be better because for many, many years it was atrocious. Yes, you're right about that. And uh, it's still really bad. Um, I personally live downtown and the improvements they've made are mostly downtown, which maybe is fair enough because about 20% of people who live downtown get around by active transportation, mostly walking, which is a much higher percent than in the rest of the city. But nevertheless, there are people all over the city who need to use those sidewalks. 
And there are also a lot of people who don't use them but would if they were safe. For example, children could walk safely to school and get a bit of fresh air and exercise if they had safe sidewalks to walk on. So uh, to answer your question, um, I think there have been some improvements in the downtown. There are a few more sidewalks cleared. Well, uh, before 2009, I don't think there were any sidewalks cleared, so it's all improvement. But it's still really bad. There's still a huge amount of work that needs to be done. Uh, And so uh, that's why we want to hear from people about their experiences. You know, sometimes it's a timing issue, isn't it? Because the sidewalk clearer will go through, and then maybe because the snow has continued, here comes the snow plow, and all of a sudden some of the snow that was removed from the sidewalk has just been put back there by the plow itself. And I know some of the units, if not all the units, have a salter attached to it, but unless it's really nicely cleared, even just the first few pedestrians over, we know what happens when you impact the snow with your boot. It becomes greasy and icy very, very quickly. So even when the city tries to expand the program and tries to do their level best, still some moves to make it even better are required because far too often, and like my boys are out there walking around all the time, far too often the so-called cleared sidewalk gets trampled on by two or three people. All of a sudden it's icy again. So I don't know what the solution is but we've all experienced a slippery sidewalk or not even cleared sidewalk many times yeah that that is true for sure and we could have a very long conversation about what the city should do but uh that's one reason i guess that we're inviting people to come in on friday night and tell us what they think well give some Um, of your ideas quickly we don't have to have a long conversation but give us some of your ideas Um, Well, um, this may not be popular with all your listeners. I personally think they need to spend more money. The city of St. John's for sidewalk snow clearing spends uh, about half what they spend uh, in Halifax, despite having about twice the amount of snow they get in Halifax. So uh, also the city itself did um, a consultation a few years ago in which they compared St. John's with five other cities across Canada that were selected because they had some similarities with St. John's. Um, And four of those five other cities clear all their sidewalks. uh, And the fifth one clears 60% of its sidewalks. St. John's clears 10% of its sidewalks. So we obviously need to just take it more seriously and invest more in it so that people can get around safely. So when, fair enough. So when is the open mic night opportunity? Uh, it is Friday night, November 18th, this Friday. Uh, at uh, Doors open at 7 o'clock, and uh, it says on the poster, the rants begin at 7.30. But it can be a rant, it can be a story, you can show a picture, or um, I believe we have technology to show a short video even, but they might want to inquire about that. I'll give you the information in a minute. Um, anyway, uh, just for people to come and share their experiences and uh, their ideas on this topic. And it's also going to be um, a social evening. There will be snacks, um, homemade cookies, and I think some other snacks as well. Um, and uh, there's a cash bar. It's at the Benevolent Irish Society at 30 Harvey Road. Well, of course there's a cash bar if it's at the BIS. Yes. Standard. <laughs> yeah. So, so that means it's a over nineteen uh, event. Of yeah, course. But we, but we do want to include everybody. So, if anybody is interested in talking to us but uh, can't come to that uh, event with a cash bar, they should. We would love to hear from them. 
um, and find another way for them to tell their stories so we can share them. And how would they reach anybody if they wanted to share them? Say, for instance, they want you to read out their particular story, but they're only 17. Uh, they can either email uh, Leah, that's not me, but she will either respond or forward to me. And her email address is lea at sjcnl.org. Or they can call me at 237-6829. 6829. So Leah at sjcnl.org or 237-6829. Good stuff. That's right. Thanks for this. Okay. All right. Thanks so much. You're welcome, Elizabeth. Bye-bye. Bye, Bye, Patty. Uh, Will I take another one, David, before we get to the news? Okay, let's go to line number one. Rick, you're on the air. Good morning, Betty. Hiya, Rick. Not too bad. I'm I'm calling about the doctor situation, about giving their files to a company away. Yep. I had the same thing happen to me not too long ago. And I called the president of the Doctors Association, um, Dr. Robert Young. And um, I was told that that was illegal. They were not allowed to send their files away. And uh, the doctors are supposed to hold your files for seven years. And he immediately got in touch with my doctor and... uh, had her give me my files. If it's illegal, then you would imagine there'd be some recourse to uh, recover some of the costs if indeed you had to pay 300 bucks to a company in Ontario. Yeah. I didn't know that to be true, to be honest with you. But you don't have to go to Ontario. All you have to do is call the uh, Doctors Association, get in touch with them, and they will get in touch with your doctor and make sure that they give you your files. Yeah, but my point is that it could be after the fact. Because this one guy who's told us his own personal story was, he had no idea that his doctor was leaving. It wasn't a retirement. The doctor was just taken off for an opportunity somewhere else in the country. And next thing he knows, when he's uh, called by the receptionist to wrap up uh, the doctor's business, told that your files are at X company in Ontario. Here's the contact information. He calls them and, and Buddy says, 300 bucks. So that's what happened to that particular fellow. But you're, if, it's, if it's illegal, then maybe, just maybe, the uh, Doctors Association, the NLMA, can make that really widely understood so we don't have this happening to anybody? Actually, I'm surprised that they never did that, you, you know, after my, after my complaint, you know. Um, but doctors, are, they just can't throw away your files to another company. They must keep your files... Uh, for seven years. Fair enough, and I'm glad you shared that bit of information with us. So for those living with or married to or friends with family doctors, maybe just tell them what Rick had to say here on the program this morning and ensure that we can save people a few bucks when they go through the aggravation of trying to find a new doctor. Yeah, well, you know, they're sharing their your personal information That's right. with, with another company. And that can be viewed by anybody. Absolutely. You know? and, yeah. And that that is highly illegal. You I, know, that's no different than, than uh, the um, healthcare system uh, announcing that they've lost so many files. 
you're right. It's in the hands of somebody who, uh, who knows who and who knows how, what kind of safeguards they have in place. So that's another fair point, Rick. I'm glad you told us about it this morning. Thanks for the call. Okay, no problem at all. Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. Time for the newscast. When we come back, plenty of different topics in the queue. We're speaking with you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the program. Let's go. Line number one, Kyle, you're on the air. How you doing, Patty? Doing okay. You? <clears throat> Not bad, bye. Thanks for uh, taking the call. No problem. Uh, so yesterday I was taking the kids to, uh, they're two and four, to get their COVID vaccine. And, uh, of course, now they were a bit worried about that, so I had to take them to uh, a restaurant for, for lunch before we went. Okay. So we're sitting in the restaurant, just, uh, you know, right around lunchtime, noontime. Uh, busy spot, kids from the, the junior highs coming along. And uh, we're sitting down, and, and behind us is a group of a half dozen or so kids, and, you know, they're getting on with all kinds of colorful stuff, but nothing terribly offensive. Uh, and there's some language being used, and uh, at one point, one of the employees who was sitting down to have her lunch turned around and said, guys, tone it down a bit. There's, there's kids there. So they said, oh, yeah, no problem. Sorry about that. And so about 30 seconds goes by, and we're all eating our lunch, and uh, we hear one student say to another student, you N-word. And uh, at the same time, I guess myself and this employee sort of turned around and chastised a little bit and were disturbed by what we had heard. I mean, my children didn't understand the significance of it, uh, and we didn't make a big scene or anything, but... The uh, employees were quick to act and, uh, you know, remove these people from the restaurant, and they were fairly young and, and all that. But I just wanted to make the call today because I, I you know, when I turned around, I, it happened that two or three of the, the, the young people were uh, visual minorities. Uh, I think the person who used the word may have been. I'm not sure. And it just struck me. I... I I, in my interactions with the youth of today, I, I'm generally encouraged because I think that they're a whole lot more sensible uh, and eloquent in their words than I would have been at their age, and that's my general experience. But what I heard yesterday was it was nothing short of disturbing. I mean, just the, the casualness of the use of of a word that, that has so much hurt in it. Um and a word that, you know, is, is not acceptable in our house, and I'd like to think it's not acceptable in, in any home. But I just, I remind parents, you know, I think I think the kids of today are, like I said, uh, by and large, the, the, the new generation, we, we can learn a lot from them in the way that they treat one another and, and, and that sort of thing. That's my general opinion. But I remind parents and, and schools to, to be wary of this and to, to have conversations about, you know, the power of these words. Uh, you know, I know sticks and stones may break your bones and words can never hurt, but... There, there's, there's a line, I think, Patty, and I heard that line cross yesterday. Oh, listen, words can absolutely hurt. Words matter. And, you know, sometimes we try to have faith in our kids and give them some independence, and you can't be looking over their shoulder 24-7, and there's no need to wrap them up in bubble wrap. But, you know, conversations about what is and what is not appropriate is always important as a parent. I mean, we still have to have them with our 22- and 25-year-old kids, even though the boys are they're lovely. But, you know, sometimes in their 
own social circles, some of them might have these crass comments come flying out of their mouth. So, you know, talking about how words impact people is obviously really important. I, I have a job where my words have to be on point and strike the proper tone, or the next thing you know that I've got people who are infuriated about something that I may or may not have intended anything by, but just that's the fact of the matter here. Words count. They do, and you do a fine job, by the way, Patty. But, you know, that, well, I'll say that the, before we left, uh, one of the young people in particular came up, and, and he offered apologies for, for what was said. And, and I said to him, I, I appreciate you saying that, and I said, the truth is, I just I hope that you guys will hold each other accountable to, to these types of things. Because that's, I, I called you once before a couple of years ago, Patty, and we talked about bullying. And it, it's the same, uh, cut from the same cloth to me. It's, it's having the courage to stand up and say, hang on, that's not okay. And if more people do that, and I think most people feel it, but they might not be willing to do it. And if more people do it, uh, we'll get this crap out of our out of our systems and out of our communities, in my opinion. I appreciate this this morning, Kyle. Thanks a lot. Take care of yourself, Pat. You too. Bye-bye. Man, oh, man. Let's go line number three. Walter, you're on the air. Hey, good morning. Morning to you. Yeah, I... Uh we went, my wife and I went to visit our daughter in uh, the U.S. left on November 28th. And when I went to uh, security in in, uh, in Toronto, uh, the girl said to me, you know, your driver's license expires this month. And I said, geez, I didn't realize that. So I always carry my uh, passport with me, and I needed it that day because we're, for obvious reasons. So when we got in Oklahoma, I uh, went online, never knew my driver's license. Paid the fee of uh, one hundred and fifteen dollars, and then I suddenly realized, geez, if I had waited time until November sixth, my birthday, I would have gotten the uh, senior discount. So I emailed the uh, motor vehicle division and told them the situation. And I said, listen, I think I'm entitled to a refund because, you know, in a few days from then, uh, I would have I would have gotten it, and now I'm being punished for uh, being diligent. I got a message back with a copy of the fees uh, policy, and uh, you know, saying that you know you don't qualify because you're under a certain policy. And I said, well, basically, that's what managers are for to determine whether or not a policy applies to a certain situation. And if it doesn't, then they have the authority to do it. So, still gotta know we can't do anything for you. Email the uh, minister of the same department and came back with the same message. So. It's, it's more the it's more the principle of the thing than the money. I'm not going to play the poor seniors card, but you know, the bottom line is that being being diligent by three or four days, I uh, I I had to pay an extra fee. Yeah, I don't know if there should be grace periods built in, you know, especially if someone's trying to save themselves some uh, headaches as a traveler. So I don't know what the right approach is. So are you suggesting that there would be a buffer of two, three, seven days around that birth date and the potential for a benefit or a, a reduction? Yeah, and the thing about it is the, the uh, registrar motor vehicle has that authority. I know I worked there for almost 38 years. And I know, okay. Uh, yeah, so anyway... Uh, yeah, so uh, I know regulations can change. I mean, as as they go through the house policies, and that's the reason why they call policies because we can fix them in a hurry. I know uh, when I worked there, I came across a similar situation with that, and I would make a recommendation to the registrar saying, "Listen, I think that the person's entitled to a refund here. You know, it's just not fair." And uh, and you know, most times it did. But and if I put that insult to injury, then a couple of days later, I received a letter in the mail 
which all civil servants get, um, that you turn 65, now your provincial pension is reduced by X number of dollars. I think it works out to be somewhere around uh, the same as your Canada um, pension. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, again, I'm not gonna, like I'm not going to play the poor seniors card because uh, I'm, I'm not a poor, I'm not a rich senior. But I'm certainly not a poor one either. But you know, I thought it was. So anyway, my advice out there to people, and I'm not letting this go. But what I would like is for someone from motor vehicle or minister's office to call in and explain why they can't set, issue a refund. What I could have done. Once I realized that, I could have actually applied for a refund. I would get a full one because my license uh, technically was still uh, was still valid from the previous year. And then I could have applied on November 6th, my birthday, and I would have gotten a reduction. So I would have put them through some extra paperwork to fix the problem. I didn't, but you know, I thought that maybe they'll be reasonable. But anyway, they're not. But my advice to anyone who is who will turn 65 and their driver's license expires, wait till your birthday and or your vehicle expires. And uh, on the month you turn 65, wait until your birthday and you'll get a substantial uh, reduction in, in the fee. Solid advice, Walter. I appreciate it. Thank you. All the best. All right, final break of the morning. When we come back, Keith Cormier to talk about an upcoming First Nations town hall and the PC member for Bonavista's Craig Party. He's in the queue as well. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number five. Good morning, Keith Cormier. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty Daly. How are you today? Top shelf. How you doing? Well, I'm just pulled over on the side of the road here in Bayford Junction on the way to Grand Falls. But before we get started, I just want to put a big shout out to an indigenous musician friend of mine, Paul Pike. Uh, he was up for a Grammy Award nomination consideration for his new album, Native American Flute Music. I think it's the first Native American flute CD ever produced here in Newfoundland and Labrador. He didn't get the nomination, but he's a great musician. You can find his music on any of the online streams. And, and the album is called Echoes of Our Ancestors, which is probably good to lead into what I'm going to really talk about now. Okay, go right ahead. And thanks um, for the shout-out for that guy. Yeah, he's a, he's a, just check him out. He's an amazing musician, um, and uh, his music is really hurtful. But anyway, um, I have been uh, contracted by the Assembly of First Nations to conduct a series of community engagements with the Mi'kmaq people of Newfoundland and Labrador outside of, uh, of Con River. They have their own in, uh, band uh, with Halibut First Nation on uh, the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Uh, the acronym is UNDRIP. Um, and uh, we've had two already, one in Cornbrook and Porto Port, and I'm on the way to Grand Falls uh, tonight, Gander Bay tomorrow morning, and Gander tomorrow night for the Glenwood, Gander Bay, and Exploits Wards. So really, in a nutshell, um, the, the UNDRIP uh, was started in 2007 because the Mi'kmaq Grand Council, not 2007, in the 1980s, when the Mi'kmaq Grand Council, the traditional uh, governance body of the Mi'kmaq people in eastern Canada, as we know it, uh, were turned down by the federal government to have representatives at the constitutional consultations. So they felt that was discrimination. And they petitioned the United Nations, and a 30-year process started, uh, which culminated in 2007, when the United Nations actually around the world adopted the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, which are 46 articles. So every country in the world are now impacted uh, by how they treat indigenous peoples around the world. Only four countries actually vote against it in, in, in 2007, one of them being Canada, the U.S., Australia, and New Zealand. But Canada formally adopted it in 2016 and actually passed a law in 2021 to implement the 46 articles of UNDRIP into their 700 federal laws. So I'm conducting engagement sessions, sort of going to unpack what is UNDRIP for everybody. 
and then seek how they think um, the articles of racism, discrimination, injustices, violence, whether it's physical or social or online, all those th- things affects them as an individual and, and their community and the Mi'kmaq Nation as an entire en- entity. Give us the calls notes what UNDRIP means, layman terms. Um, in, in, well, just to give you an example, um, Article 33 of UNDRIP states that First Nations uh, have the sole responsibility to determine membership of their organizations. So Halibut First Nation ban was uh, agreement principle signed in 2008, and the ban was formed in 2011, when about 70, 75% of the control of who was going to be a membership of Halibut First Nation rested with the federal government. If we were having that discussion today, I think that 100%, according to UNDRIP, 100% of the of the decision-making power would rest with the indigenous people organization themselves. So we might we might even look ending like we are today. There might be say there's nine wards. There might be nine different bands. Who knows? But the fact that the ability to determine who's going to be in your organization was controlled by the federal government versus the indigenous peoples is is one thing. It, it talks about how we how we interact with with our with our brothers and sisters of European descent on how we manage the resources. Uh, there's, a, there's a thing called free, prior, and informed consent, which is one of the things that's in UNDRIP that uh, Canada didn't they didn't like that in 2007, but now we have it. So UNDRIP uh, affects everything the federal government is going to do with indigenous people in Canada. And we want to in, inform our membership, inform the Indigenous people that we can develop an action plan and say to the federal government, these are the key things we want done first, rather than what the federal government wants to get done first. Well, uh, give us uh, the quick uh, and dirty about where and when the consultations will take place, Keith. Okay, well, tonight I'm having a consultation session at the Mount Payton Hotel starting at 6 p.m. Uh, tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock in, at, in the Wings Point in Gander Bay for the Gander Bay Ward, and then 6 o'clock tomorrow evening at the Albatross Hotel in Gander for the Glenwood Ward. And then on Sunday at 2 o'clock, I'm back on the West Coast uh, at the Knights of Columbus Hall on West Street in Stephenville for the Stephenville Ward. And we got more coming the week after next, but those dates have not been firmed up yet. Keep us in the loop as to how it unfolds. Yeah, well, it's been the discussions so far have been really interesting with the people that have been in the room and um, how they feel uh, they have been impacted by what the federal government has done to them and, and their communities. So we're we're capturing all that. We got note takers in every every session, and we're calling the notes. We're going to put together the plan. Actually, we're going to be in St. John's the I think the twelfth week of the twelfth of December, uh, doing a policy forum with the First Lake people. So um, it's, it's a comprehensive program, and I look forward to seeing what we come with it and how we can get the federal government to act. Get back in touch when you make your way to town, Keith. Thank, I will do. Thank you very much, sir. You're welcome. Take good care. Good luck. Take, oh, listen, Dawson Mercer was second star last night. Yes, I know. He looked good. <laughs> oh, man. He's playing some hockey. Yeah, he, he really did look good. I know he's coming up a little bit short on the points that he'd like to put on the board, but a couple of apples yeah. last night looked good out there. Uh, he's, he's, he, there's, there's no stop to his game. No, I, I like him. I really oh, like him. And the Devils oh. look super solid. I uh, appreciate oh. this, Keith. Stay in touch. Safe travels. Take care. All the best. You too. Bye-bye. All right, David, I'll take Mr. Party here now. Uh, okay, so the PC member for Bonavista, Craig Party's in the queue. Maybe we'll have to do a split focus call, phone call. Bit today, bit tomorrow if we run out of time. Is that what we want to do? All right, so let's do exactly that. Let's go to line number six. Morning, Craig. You're on the air. Patty, good morning to you. Craig, uh, Craig Party here. Uh, you started your show today with a caller from Newman's Cove, which talking about the dire situation that they find in their their water supply. Yep. I just want to update, and I think uh, she had referenced uh, you know a public meeting we had. Uh, she she planned, to my knowledge, and it was a great turnout. Uh, two things that were coming um, from that meeting. One was that we would put in a request 
for to the government to complete and take the community off a boil water advisory that has been on since 99, if not before. Some say the 80s. So consistently since 99, it's been on a boil water advisory. Uh, the, the cost of that project that was submitted was $2.2 million. This is a, uh, a community of about 80 households. Um, that would have it five have their own private wells, so it's not a not a big not a big community. Uh, two things that were uh, the other one was a potable water supply that would be in the community, which we would apply for a um, a special assistance grant. To give an idea of what to call her, and she was on the end of the line, which it is, and, and you know I sympathize with her. There was a, a project which they applied for a quarter of a million this year, which unfortunately there were only two bids for, and the two bids that came in on that tender were over what the uh, the amount was. It was the engineers and the government who decided that you're better off waiting until the spring where there would be more suitors that hopefully we'd be able to get without uh, limiting the terms that we want done or the magnitude of the work in the spring. And that's what the decision was made, to, to wait until the spring. Uh, the LSD has been going, Patty, have been doing every five years applying for about a quarter of a, quarter of a million because that's all they can afford. The $2.2 million would need some financial assistance with the government to carry them uh, for a longer period of time that they would pay, but no, they can get financing for that amount. Uh, and that's where we are. So we thought that might be a plan. I mentioned that estimates in in, um, in the House of Assembly and, you know, in Water Resources and Minister Davis, they seem receptive to entertaining it. I talked with the uh, Transportation Infrastructure, Minister uh, Loveless, last week as the latest one on, on the situation. So it's a lot of money. But if they keep going in dribs and drabs like they're doing, then it's going to take an awful long time to come off the boil water advisory. And keep in mind that they've been on now for over over two two decades. Uh, one of the main problems, Patty, was that uh, back they made a decision that the uh, the source they took was Big Pond, and. When they did a water study in 2011, they found that there was a, a, another larger pond, which better quality of water, which would provide to the community. The cost on that was 700000 to go in and draw water from Whoa. that larger source with better quality of water. And 700000 is hard to come by with uh, a community of that size unless there is a plan or some kind of financial arrangement from the government to enable them to pay it off over a longer period of time than what the financial institutions would provide in, um, you know, for a five-year period. Got it. And just because we cleared 12 o'clock, uh, we've had the last word, but we appreciate the update, and I'm sure the caller does as well. Thank you, Patty. Thanks, Greg. All, All the best. best. Enjoy your day. You too. That's Greg Patty, the PC member for Bonavista. All right, we're out of time, but we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.